we start with the Bible and we work from there. Okay, so if you have brought yours from home, pull it out uh, and open up to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is where we're going to be. Um, if you uh, didn't bring yours, we have some place at the ends of the rows that you can grab, and I would suggest grabbing that because we're going to be flipping through uh, a lot of Habakkuk today, and it's just easier to follow in a tangible Bible to actually turn the page back and forth. I know last week Dave was preaching on Nahum, and I didn't do that. I was like, I could do this on my phone, and I was so wrong. <laughs> I was so wrong. I was like, I can't keep up. Um, anyways, so uh, the book of Habakkuk. Um, If you've been with us for a little while, we've been working through a a teaching series that we're working through some small, somewhat obscure books in the Old Testament. The Old Testament are the the scriptures that the Hebrews have that were written before um, Jesus showed up on the scene, and the the Hebrews and the Jews, they actually still reference them as their holy scriptures today. And and Habakkuk is is part of a set of books that the Hebrews call the Twelve. The twelve, they call them the twelve, but in Christian circles we've come to call them the minor prophets, the minor prophets. And we call them the minor prophets because um, prophets are people in Israel who spoke for God. Prophets spoke for God, and we call them the minor prophets because they're short. They're, They're just a lot shorter than some of the other prophetic works that we have in the Old Testament, who were really, really long-winded. These people are short-winded. So if you have a conversation with me, it'll be more like a minor prophet conversation. If you have a conversation with Pastor Dave, major prophet conversation. That's just going to be a little bit longer, a little bit more worked out, fleshed out, maybe even a little more exciting, let's be honest. Um, So that's why they're called minor prophets, and we're going to be in Habakkuk today, okay? And you know what? We're just going to jump right into it, because Habakkuk is a really great minor prophet. It's a little bit different than the other ones, And so we're just going to see that right on the very beginning. So chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see inequity? That's another word for sin. And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now, if you've been tracking with us over these, uh, this, this sermon series, I think this is the seventh installment that we're in right now, you have already noticed that Habakkuk is taking a very different tone and tack than the other minor prophets do. The other minor prophets are very concerned with with talking about God's judgment that is coming on uh, rebellious nations that are acting unjustly, but not Habakkuk. These are Habakkuk's actual questions. Habakkuk is asking questions, and he's almost confused. He's almost frustrated. Many of the Bibles, the, the heading right above what we just read will say Habakkuk's complaint. He's complaining to God. He's saying, how long shall I cry to help and you cry for help and you not help God? How long am I going to see terrible things and you are not going to save me? How long am I going to experience and see injustice and you're going to sit idly by and do nothing? How long, Habakkuk says. He's confused. He's frustrated. He probably represents one of these righteous people that is being oppressed by other wicked people in the Israelite society, and he's despairing. He's almost hopeless. He feels abandoned by his God. 
Um, about a month ago, I had a friend from college uh, reach out and ask to get together uh, with me, and I was like, well, that sounds great. I actually haven't seen you in about a decade now, <laughs> and so it'd be great to get together and, figure, and see what's going on because me and her, her name's Becca, we, we did our, our undergrad together in astrophysics, and so we studied physics, and, and we graduated together. We had a grand old time doing that, and she reached out, and she wanted to get together and hang out, and I was like, that sounds great. So my, my wife and I, we took her out to lunch, and we were having a great conversation, and uh, she had just finished all of her PhD coursework, and, uh, and was working on her dissertation right now in like a dark matter discovery in binary star systems, you know? Pretty fun stuff. If you know what I'm talking about, you're excited. If you don't, you're confused, and that's okay. But so that's what she's doing. She's writing her dissertation right now in it, and we were geeking out about it a lot. And then I decided that I wanted to talk about my master's degree with her a little bit too, you know? And so I said, hey, hey Becca, I, I went to seminary, by the way. That's where pastors go. That's the degree they get. I said, hey, Becca, I know that we were both Christians as we were processing this in undergrad. Um, how has that been going for you as you've worked through your master's study and now completed your PhD coursework? How, how's your faith been through all of that? And she said, I love her answer. She said, I love it when people ask me this question because underneath it is kind of the assumption that if I get deeper into science, I'll wrestle more with God. But she was like, honestly, when I'm looking up at the heavens and I'm researching physics and I'm doing all the the theoretical work, I find God so clearly and he's so grand and he's so beautiful. But my crisis of faith, you know, those come when my mom died. Those come when I went through my divorce. Those came when I was really wrestling with the ensuing alienation and isolation and loneliness that I felt after my divorce. You see, when I look at the heavens, that's when things are great with me and God. But when I look around me, that's when I really struggle with the notion of God. And, and I loved her answer there because I felt this similarly when I was in, going through the studies. People ask you, how's your faith in working with that? And it's like, well, that's great. If you actually see how beautiful physics is, you really start to grasp how amazing God must be. But when we look around ourselves, we see the wickedness next to us, within us, the oppression happening. That's when we start to question God. And you see, all of us have these questions. How long, God, are you going to let evil go on? Habakkuk's asking these questions, and you can almost feel it. God, if, if you're all loving, you love us, and you care about us, and you're all powerful, meaning that you can do whatever you want, well, then why aren't you acting on behalf of us? See, his confusion, his frustration. These are our confusions. These are our frustrations. At several point in our lives, we are going to brush into these. No matter what experiences, you're going to have experiences in life that, that t- bring you to these questions. Job loss, seasons of unemployment, how long, God? Chronic pain and health issues, how long, God? Disease and disorders, how long, God, are you going to let me put up with this and sit idly by? Don't you love me? Aren't you powerful to act? Why can't you do something here? And and so one thing we need to realize is these kind of questions, they're not new at all. They're not new. Habakkuk was writing 2,600 years ago. These are questions that humanity has always asked of God. They've always, always asked these questions. They're not new, so it should normalize it for us. These are okay questions to have and experience. It also validates us, the fact that these are in the Word of God, and that we're going to see these questions answered in a couple different ways. It means that they're really important questions, too. 
okay? They're really important questions. And so that brings us to a good question that all of us can ask today. What's your how long statement? What is it? How long, God, will I be single? How long, God, will I suffer in this way? How long will I deal with this? Or maybe your how long statement isn't even about yourself. God, how could you let that happen to them? Why do bad, terrible things happen to great people? How long, God, are we going to have to wrestle with this? What's your how long statement that you have today? All of us have them. And there's two unhealthy ways to deal with these how long questions. There's two unhealthy ways that, that people typically deal with them, okay? The first one is to suppress these questions, the first way is to suppress these questions. When, when the events or the circumstances or the experiences that happen to you in life begin to make these questions and your doubts in God and your struggles with faith bubble to the surface, you can suppress them. You just push those back down. I'm not going to deal with those things right now. Often the hidden motivation there is actually uh, either fear or pride. Fear, maybe you're scared that, that if, I, if people in my religious community were to know that I'm struggling with these questions like this, they might shame me in some way. Or it could be pride-oriented. If I say that I'm struggling with these questions, I'll lose reputation in the religious community. I will lose power in the religious community in some way. Religious people suppress these questions. This is religious suppression of questions. That's the first unhealthy way that we can deal with questions like this. The second unhealthy way we can uh, deal with, uh, we can handle questions like this is to declare these questions. It's to declare these questions. What does this look like? What do I mean by this? Um, these questions can easily be used as rhetorical devices to dismiss God. Okay, so you'll, you'll hear uh, statements like this. If God is all-loving and all-powerful, how come there's evil in the world? And, and the attitude that it's being asked with is uh, th this notion of God that you have, that he loves us, that he's all-powerful, that's nonsensical. And it's being used to dismiss God. Secular people do this. Secular people do this. And, and their hidden motivation is often they don't want there to be a God because they don't want to have to live their lives any differently than they are. So they will declare these questions to God as rhetorical devices, okay? But there's something really interesting that both of these things, these unhealthy ways to handle these questions, they look very different. They come from very different motivations, but they have something in common too. They have something in common too, and that's this. Both people assume that they are unique in their questioning. The religious person feels like, I'm the only one struggling with this. I can't let anybody know about it. The secular person thinks that they've attained some, some level of enlightenment or, or being woke, I guess it's put nowadays, of, of wokeness that the rest of us haven't yet stepped into. And so they're so much more enlightened than the rest of us because they're asking these questions, but they're not asking them, they're declaring them. They both think they're unique in, their, in, in experiencing these questions. But Habakkuk is going to show us a third way. He's going to show us a third way this morning. And he's going to show us that that third way is to wrestle. To wrestle with these questions. Or to, how we say here at Sedaris, faithfully consider these questions. He's going to show us a third way of actually rolling up your sleeves and diving into them and dealing with them. And the question we should ask is why? 
Why, why is he so ready to wrestle with these questions? These are hard questions. These can be scary, intimidating questions. These could be questions that we don't want to step into and put a foot in, in that arena at all. Why? Well, it's because he's part of Israel. He's part of Israel. Does anybody here know what Israel means? It means he who wrestles with God. He or she who wrestles with God. Now that's strange, isn't it? Isn't that really strange that Israel is named he or she who wrestles with God? And this comes from Jacob, who is the father of Israel. His 12 sons were, were started the 12 tribes of Israel. And God came to Jacob, and Jacob was wrestling with God, and he, he renamed him. He gave him a new name. He says, your name is he who wrestles with God. How interesting, how strange is that? See, the people of God have always wrestled with They've always struggled with God. They've always had doubts. They've always had questions. They've always had confusions and frustrations and complaints, even accusations of God. They always have. And Habakkuk is going to show us how we can do this best, okay? We're going to go work through Habakkuk. He's going to show us how to faithfully wrestle, how to faithfully consider alongside him, because maybe you're new to us here at Sedaris, but we're all about consideration of Jesus. We're all about that. We're all about what this faithful consideration looks like. And so maybe you're here today, and you're starting to ask these questions for the first time. That's so great. We, we celebrate when that happens, when you're, at, when you're starting to ask these questions and not just merely declare these questions, because it means that you're starting to consider. But what you might be surprised by is that this third way that Habakkuk responds with is actually what gospel people do too. You might be surprised, you should know that you're in good company, that several Christians have doubts and questions and concerns as well, and you might even be surprised how similar those doubts and questions are to your own. Okay, so, so we're going to go through it, and Habakkuk's going to show us how to best do it, and then afterwards, we're going to see, uh, after he goes through this, this wrestling, that gospel, gospel people do, we're going to see the results. What comes afterwards when we wrestle with God through these questions, okay? So, so that's, that's what we're going to do today, okay? We're going to look at how to do it, and we're going to look at the results that come afterwards, okay? Okay, well, um, the best way to understand this book of Habakkuk is to understand that it's a conversation. It's a, it's a conversation. This is a back and forth between this guy with a crazy name, Habakkuk, that I don't know if you pronounced it right, Ali. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Um, but there's this back and forth between Habakkuk and God that's a conversation. It's the easiest way to understand it. And it's a conversation that was happening in the final decades of the southern kingdom's existence. Okay, so if you've been here, we've, we've gone through this, this kind of scenario of the history of of Israel a couple of times now, but Israel was a nation, and then it became a divided nation, and then, then the northern kingdom was invaded by Assyria, and it passed away, and now uh, Habakkuk's actually living in the southern kingdom in the final decades before Babylon is going to come in and take over it, and what he's experiencing, every, uh, his kind of norm that he's experiencing in the southern kingdom of Israel at this time, is he's experiencing oppression, this is the impression that his questions kind of hint at. Everywhere he looks, he sees the law being perverted. Everywhere he looks, he sees wicked people taking advantage of righteous people for their own gain, okay? And he asks these questions, and what happens next is he waits for a reply. He waits for a reply. 
And this is really the first key that we can really figure out how to faithfully consider or how to wrestle with God. It's we ask the questions in curiosity, and in that way, we're not really declaring these questions like we talked about earlier. Habakkuk asked these questions in genuine curiosity, and then he waits. He asks in curiosity, and he waits for God to answer. Okay, so that's the first step in how to wrestle well. Ask in curiosity and wait for God to answer. And then God does answer. Look at it here in verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Okay, so then uh, God is going to go through over these next verses and and talk about these Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, that are going to come and overthrow Israel. God says, yep, there's a lot of injustice happening in Israel, and I've appointed these Babylonians to take over and overthrow Israel as a result. And if you're anything like Habakkuk, you go, what? What, God? And that, that's the Spark Notes version of Habakkuk's reply. What are you talking about, God? This doesn't make any sense. Sure, sure, there are wicked people in Israel that are oppressing the righteous, but Babylon, they're even worse. How is this a good solution? It's, it's here in verses 13 when Habakkuk replies to God. He says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent? when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. He's even more confused. He's saying, we have the spectrum of righteousness. There's wicked people in Israel, but Babylon's way worse. How is this a reasonable solution to the problem, God? His wrestling's intensified. And this is the first thing that we actually have to take note of when we start leaning into, when we start wrestling with questions like uh, these big, doubting, confusing, frustrated questions that we all have of God that are part of the human experience, it doesn't get better right away. In fact, it can get more intense, and often it does get more intense. Okay, there's not a nice bow tied on it right away. Habakkuk did just voice his questions, God answered them perfectly, and then they went on their way. No, he struggles more. His questioning gets more intense. He has even new, more intense questions. Look at it in verse 17. He says, Is he then, the he is the nation or the empire of Babylon, is he then to keep on emptying his net? The the, the metaphor in the verses above is that Babylon is this fisherman and the people of the earth are the fish, and Babylon keeps on putting his nets out and fishing people out of the ocean and then eating them, killing them, okay? So is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Is in, do unjust nations, do they just go on forever, God? More wrestling, more questions, but he's doing it faithfully still. He's still faithfully considering because he's asking it in curiosity and then he's waiting. And we know that because of the next verse, in 2 verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He's going to wait. And this metaphor that he's using of the watch post was one that in ancient Israel, there was just a guy, who, in, in all ancient cities, there was just a guy who stood on the city walls and looked out. 
all night to make sure nothing would invade. And so this is, he's using this metaphor to really emphasize, I'm going to be waiting a long time, and I might not hear anything for a while, but I'm going to wait. So this waiting can be a long time as well. So the question gets more intense. The waiting in between when you're waiting for God to answer, whether that be um, uh, directly to you, uh, through his word, through a sermon, through your community, it can be a while, okay? But then God does answer. God does answer. Verse 2, and the Lord answered me. How glorious of a statement that is. God answers his people. That's, that, that's such an amazing statement. And I love that it's just right there. I mean, it's kind of implied, you know, if, if God would just start talking, talking. But, but Habakkuk's like, no, he answered me. I had questions and he answered me. How amazing is this? Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. It will not delay. This, this is right here. Behold, his soul is puffed up. The his soul is Babylon. His soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. This is a very uh, popular phrase that is, that is used at several points in the New Testament, and we'll get to that a little bit later, but the righteous will live by faith, God is telling Habakkuk. In fact, this is probably the big idea of the book of Habakkuk, that the righteous shall live by his faith, okay? It, it's glorious, and what we should really ask is, if this is part of what it means to faithfully wrestle with God, to, to contend and, and to ask our questions, what does it actually mean? Because righteous and faith are pretty vague terms, aren't they? I mean, when was the last time you used these terms in your day-to-day -day speech, <laughs> in your workplace or in the world to talk about something? I mean, these are words that are kind of vague, and in Christian circles, we can just kind of assume we all know what they mean. But what do these words mean? What does it mean that the righteous will live by faith? Well, one, let's start off by talking about what it doesn't mean, okay? It doesn't mean that the people who have faith in God, they just, they just kind of put up and accept the way that things are in the world. It doesn't mean that they move ahead blindly and whatever happens, that's just God's will. We don't question it. That's just what happens. That, that's not actually what, what faith really is. And, and when Habakkuk is wrestling here, it's clear that he's not putting up and shutting up. He's not tapping out of these conversations that God is starting with him through circumstances that are happening in the world. In fact, what's really happening here is, and what we see is that Habakkuk's wrestling and his questions are actually indicative of great faith. They're actually indicative of faith. In fact, when, if you're a Christian and you would say, you know, I really don't struggle with questions like that. Maybe you've even thought that this morning as we've been talking about having these questions. That seems really, really strange to me because the people of God have always wrestled with their doubts. And if you haven't, that seems very strange to me. It's probably pretty likely that you've just been hanging out with religious people too much, honestly. You know, but Christians wrestle with their doubts 
and having intense questioning, intense seasons of questioning, intense seasons of doubt doesn't disqualify faith. It's actually compatible with and often even indicative of great faith inside somebody's heart. Being willing to press into these questions with God is indicative even of great faith. And, and I, I'm, I'm really hammering this point home. Some of you are like, man, get on to the next point. You've been talking about the same thing, it seems like, for 15 minutes. But we just run into this so often here in Seattle. The, the general notion is by any Christian who has doubts like this or concerns or worries or second thoughts, you'll hear them say this, I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. And it's like, hold up, hold up, you're wrestling with these questions. That's actually part and parcel with what it has meant to be the people of God throughout all of history. Fathers wrestle with their children. I have two daughters. They love to wrestle physically. And then, you know what else happens? We wrestle emotionally a ton. A ton. And then I have a five-year-old Lucy. She's pretty bright. We're starting to wrestle intellectually even with one another, okay? And just because Lucy and Penny, they wrestle with me, it doesn't mean they're no longer my children. In fact, it's indicative of that they are indeed my children. I don't wrestle with anybody else's kids but my own. You see that? God's children wrestle with him. It's part of the father-child relationship. Parents wrestle with their children. I just want to say it again. Parents wrestle with their children. If you're asking hard questions of God, that is amazing. It means that God is in some way your father. He is your father. Maybe you're just beginning, I say in some way, because maybe you're just on the front end of asking questions and wrestling, and you're beginning to start to take steps of maybe God is my father, and you're going to start to have your questions answered. But God is your father if you're really wrestling with him, because that's when you're being most like Israel. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Okay. We, we, we can move on now. What does it mean then? It doesn't mean blindly accepting okay? What does it mean? Well, well, having faith is very similar to trust. Faith and trust are very similar in, well, most languages actually, including the Hebrew, but faith and trust are very, very similar. And, and when you trust something, what you're doing is you're leaning on it, you're kind of relying on it, you're kind of depending on it to support you. That, that's when you trust something. Uh, the classic example is all of us um, have made a conscious decision to trust the seat that we're sitting in right now. Now, it's obviously subconscious as you came in here, you know, but it would be a really fun thought exercise to ask the question of what made you actually trust the chair that you're sitting in? Some of you are rolling your eyes. That's great. That's fine. This is just like the classic example. But what actually did uh, make you trust this chair that you came in and sat in? Have you sat in it before? And that's how you knew it would support you again? Uh, did, did, uh, maybe you just realized that the government owns this building and the government hates being sued. And so, like, obviously, they would put chairs in their, uh, their facilities that could be able to hold people and support people so they wouldn't sit in them and get hurt, you know? Or, or maybe you, uh, you came here with a friend today and your friend trusted the chair and you trust them in their chair choices, okay? And so you said, okay, yeah, I can, I can trust that chair. We're kind of a similar make and model. It'll, it'll support me too. But, but very similarly with God, trusting in him means to depend upon him, to put your weight on him, to lean on him as something that can hold you and not drop you. Whether you're doing that because you've done it before and it's worked, whether you're doing that because uh, there's been some authorities in your life that have said, hey, you can trust God and he will hold you, he will support you, or whether you're doing it because your friend seems to be doing it and experiencing a lot of life, 
This is what it means to have faith in God and to trust in him, is to lean on him and support him. Now, what you could do in your chair right now is you could look under it and find some serial code, and you could pull your phone out, and you could Google it, and you could start to investigate what about that chair is keeping you from falling to the floor right now to see if it is trustworthy. You can Google it and look into it. While you're sitting in it, you can investigate its integrity. It's the same way with God. You can lean on God, you can trust in him, you can live by faith in him, and you can ask questions about his integrity. And that's awesome. That's incredible. Can you believe we have a faith like this? That he will hold us while he lets us ask questions about his integrity? That's a pretty cool God. That's an amazing God. And that's what we see Habakkuk doing throughout these scriptures here, okay? And and it's been true of him since the very beginning. So back in chapter 15, we we see um, uh, Genesis chapter 15, we see the the man of Abraham. This is one of the first places that we get righteousness connected directly to faith in the scriptures, okay? And and, in Abraham, what we see, God, uh, the scriptures say of Abraham that he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Trust and righteousness right next to each other. Again, well, what was he trusting God with? Well, uh, if we look at the context, God had told Abraham that he would, make, he would give him many, many descendants, although there was a problem. Him and his wife were barren. They'd been married for decades, never had any children. God shows up and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you have children. Abraham and Abraham believed that God could do that, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he heard God's word, and he decided to trust it and lean on it. But here's the thing. If you continue to read the stories, chapter 16, 17, 18, 19, do you know what you see Abraham do? Wrestle with believing that. Wrestle. There's many years where he and his wife weren't pregnant still. He went and actually tried to start a family with another woman. But by his faith, he was still counted righteous. See, the saints of God have had great faith and great wrestling with God throughout all of the scriptures. That's what we see happening here, okay? And it really is the same for us. We hope that we can be a place where we can wrestle with these questions. So to hear God's word proclaimed, respond to it by putting faith in it and trusting it, and then wrestling with it. That's what the believing community is all about. Okay, so, so that's how to wrestle. That's how we wrestle, learning from Habakkuk. That's how we wrestle with God. And the question then is now what does this lead to? What does it lead to? Okay, uh, the first one is really easy to see here. Um, it's in, yeah, it's really easy to see. It's, it's that he, um, he got answers to his questions. Answers. The results of wrestling with God with your questions and your doubts is that you will get answers. It may take some time, but those answers will eventually come so long as you continue to ask the questions in curiosity and give God the space to show up and respond. So Habakkuk's question is, is how can you go on God and not punish evil when you see it? How can you do that? And then God answers that question in the rest of chapter 2. And maybe that's your question too. Why do evil nations flourish? Are they going to continue on forever, God? And so I want to show you just really quickly how God answers that question because it's here in Habakkuk chapter 2. He does so by way of five woes. 
five woes. And, and woes are throughout ancient uh, literature, and it's, they're all over in the Bible as well, and, and they namely call out ways that God is going to judge nations who are not, uh, not obeying him or li- living under the way that, that he has called nations to operate in the world. They get pronounced woes over them. There's something really interesting about these woes. God isn't the one who's executing the judgment. Instead, it's clear that injustice is punishing itself in all of these woes. Let's look at a few examples here. Verse 6, shall not all these, that's referring to, shall not all the nations that Babylon has uh, taken over take up their taunt against Babylon with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long can this last? See that how long? It's kind of a cool rhetorical device that God's using. How long can they actually last? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. See what's happening here? It's saying Babylon has taken a lot of money from a lot of different people. They owe a lot of people different monies. How long can that last before the debtors arise and try to get it back? Verse 9, here's another one. Woe to him who gets an evil gain for his house. There's a metaphor that the empire that Babylon is building is house, and the, is a house, and the peoples that they're conquering are uh, the, the bricks in the walls and the rafters overhead that are making this house. Uh, woe to him who gets his evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork will respond. What is he saying here? He's saying you built this empire out of peoples and now you're oppressing the peoples. Eventually the stones are going to piece out, the rafters are going to leave, and the roof's going to fall in on your head. Injustice punishes itself in the end. Verse 15, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink your shell, yourself and know your uncircumcision. Essentially, you will become drunk and naked, and, people will, and you will find great shame, and people will take advantage of you in the same way that you've been taking advantage of other people. You see this? Sin is punishing itself. Sin has its own fallout tied to it. So to answer the question of, God, are you going to sit idly by forever? God says, no, look at the way that I've structured creation. It's structured in such a way and that sin is going to punish itself. In the end, it can't win out. And also to answer the question, can unjust nations then continue forever? Well, no. It's injustice eventually turns on everybody who leans into it. And uh, this is what's really awesome about this answer is that actually the Apostle Paul reinforces this in the book of Romans. In his introduction to the book of Romans, he actually takes this, uh, this verse here in Habakkuk 2, 4, but the righteous will live by faith to talk about the gospel, and then he contrasts it with people who will live unjustly in this world. I'm going to throw it up here on the screen for you. This is from Romans chapter 1 in his introduction. He says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. There's a small believing community who believe the gospel in Rome at this time. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by 
faith. Okay, righteousness tied to faith. And then following up, for the wrath of God is also revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For all they knew God, they did not honor him or honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You see, there's, there's action here. God giving people up who, who commit and perpetuate injustice and refuse to listen to, to his way to how to live life here in the world. And the consequences, their minds become darkened, their thinking becomes futile, and eventually injustice kind of works its way into their lives in that way, back on them. All right, so, so that's the first wrestling result, answers, okay? The, the second result is rejoicing rejoicing, okay? And this is a very interesting thing, because how do we know that Habakkuk is rejoicing here? How do we know? Well, because chapter three is actually a psalm. It's a psalm. So if you read the book of Psalms, there's 150 of them, and they are uh, prayers that are set to music and then sung aloud in the congregation of Israel. And this has the same form as one of those. Starts off 3-1, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet according to Shiganot. Shiganot is just a way that uh, the, the uh, the composers would put together songs, and it's, it's like to a certain style and tune that was particularly loud and rejoiceful. That's shiganote. Okay, and then you have the, the typical uh, pauses for reflections. Uh, after verse 3, there's, a, there's that word selah there on the right. It's kind of, I think we, the biggest, most scholars agree, we think that's a time when they would kind of pause in between verses, okay? There's another one in 9. There's another one at the end of chapter 13. And then at the end, the big tip-off is to the choir master to sing this with stringed instruments. Okay, so he's going through, uh, he, he presents a psalm. And I love that this is a psalm because we can read these rejoicing psalms in, in the book of Psalms. There's 150 of them. And most of them are really big and they're really happy and they're really rejoicing. And this shows that a lot of wrestling had to take place before we got there. We're not sure how much time is between chapter two and chapter three here. We're not sure how much time is gapping the time of, of Habakkuk's, or of God's response to Habakkuk's and, and Habakkuk's uh, psalm of rejoicing. But all psalms really have a, a lot of wrestling before getting to this rejoicing. And in fact, the rejoicing wouldn't be there if there was not such deep wrestling, okay? So it, it's a psalm. And what's going on in this psalm? Where, well, Habakkuk is remembering something. He's remembering something. Look at verse two. O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He is remembering something. He's recounting something that he has been told. What is that thing? Well, in the next 15 verses, he goes through very poetically and beautifully. He talks about how God delivered Israel when they're in slavery from the unjust, uh, unjust nation of Egypt. 
And then he concludes like this. I hear this, this is verse 16. I hear this and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And this is the most beautiful thing. Uh, these next verses are so beautiful. If, if you have a wedding coming up, Mark, are you here, Mark? This is a great, like, wedding vow, even. This is kind of wedding vow from Habakkuk in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You see, what he's saying is no matter what's going on outside of me, and he's probably experiencing all these things that, that are happening to him in, in wicked Israel, that they're taking away his stuff, the, he's being oppressed. No matter what goes on, he is God's. No matter what happens, what he loses, at the end of the day, he is living by faith. He is made right with God, and he is God's. And that is grounds for great, great rejoicing. It took a lot of wrestling with asking God questions about this, confusions, frustrations, but at the end of the day, he concludes that I am God's. No matter what affliction I'm going through, I can rejoice. And this is a huge theme throughout the entire New Testament, and it's most clearly seen, I think, in Hebrews 10, another place that actually takes up this verse from Habakkuk and talks about how the righteous will live by faith. It's in Hebrews chapter 10. The writer says, he's writing to a bunch of Christians who are being oppressed by the, the, the authorities. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that is, after you became Christians, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. You see, these, early, these Christians of the first century, they experienced the same thing that Habakkuk was probably experiencing. They were having their property ripped out of their hands. They were being publicly beaten, publicly mocked, publicly humiliated, except for some reason they were able to find joy in the midst of those struggles. You see, those who faithfully consider God, those who wrestle with these questions, by so doing, they actually get, tur they get turned into joyful lions who don't shrink back, even though they should be like the hyenas that are kicked away. It's amazing. They find great strength as well. That's the third result. They find great strength. Verse 19, God, the Lord is my strength, Habakkuk says. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? Uh, if, if you're here and you're asking that question, that's the right question. You should ask that in every single sermon that we preach. What does this have to do with Jesus? 
Jesus uh, said that, that we had to look to the Old Testament to find him, and he even said, look to the prophets. Those, they're writing about me when they're writing in the prophets. So how is Habakkuk writing about Jesus 600 years before he shows up? Well, Jesus, right, and we get this through the New Testament writers, Jesus is the true Israel. We're actually, if you're in the Emerging Leaders class, we're going to talk about this a lot in our next class, how Jesus is the true Israel, meaning that, that he was obedient in all the ways that, that Israel was, was meant to be obedient to God. And as a result, he experiences all the blessings that are promised for Israel. Like, those go to Jesus. And in the church, we experience them through putting our faith in Jesus. Uh, the church actually isn't a replacement of Israel. That can lead to some sideways theology. But Jesus is the true Israel, and we experience the blessings that are promised to Israel through him. But because he's the true Israel, what does that mean? It means we should expect him to wrestle with God, because that's what Israel means. He who wrestles with God. Now, that can be a little bit confusing. Wait, hold up a sec here. Jesus was God. How can he wrestle with God? Is this like a weird fight club analogy that's going on here? Some of you get it, some of you don't. It's okay. Um, How can he wrestle with God? This is really strange. But if you think about it, Jesus prayed. He prayed, and he didn't just pray prayers so that we could learn how to pray by looking at his prayers. He'd sneak away in the morning sometimes to be alone with his father and pray. And his disciples were like, where is Jesus? And he's like, oh, I was just off praying, you know? And the night before he goes to the cross, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying. He's praying. And the disciples record some of what his prayers looked like. We'd probably have a lot more if they didn't keep on falling asleep. It'd be great to have more of those prayers that Jesus prayed right before he went to the cross, but they kept on falling asleep. Um, and he prayed this. He said, Father, is there any other way we can do this? Is there any way that this cup can pass from me? This cup, the cup is a term that was used to refer to God's wrath throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures. Is there any way I can avoid your, crowd, your, your wrath by going to the cross? Is there any other way, God? In Luke 22, he records that Jesus prayed these prayers in agony. The words he used is agony. Jesus was in agony, so much so that he was sweating drops of blood there in the garden. That's wrestling with God. That's wrestling with doubts and questions, sweating drops of blood. But then he trusted. And in the next breath, he said, but not my will, but your will be done, God. And then he goes to the cross, and he wrestles some more. He wrestles more on the cross. On the cross, he cries out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Where have you gone? All of a sudden, the presence of the Father was gone. He couldn't feel it anymore. He'd never been alone like that at any point in time in his life. He had such a vibrant relationship with God that God, for not to be present in his life, is much more severely felt than if God is, we don't feel like God's around us. And he said, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Jesus on the cross, wrestling, confused, panicked. But he's obedient all the way to death. He had the power. He could have gotten off that cross if he wanted to. But he trusted God all the way to the point of death. So we have wrestling, trusting, wrestling, trusting. It's the same dynamic here that's happening in the book of Habakkuk twice over. 
You see how beautiful the cross is? The cross is like a thousand-sided diamond. You can come at it in a different way, a different way, different angle, and there's always a unique beauty to be found in it. The cross represents a, such a beautiful wrestling of Jesus. And then the resurrection three days later, we see the rejoicing at the end of Habakkuk happening. When Jesus comes out of the grave, when no matter what happens to Jesus, all the way, even to the point where he lost his life, no matter what happens, he is God's. And God has the strength to raise him from the dead. So no matter what happens in our lives, even if we go down to the grave, we are God's and we will rejoice again. So how do we see Jesus in Habakkuk? Well, Habakkuk is a type of Jesus. Wrestling, trusting, wrestling, trusting, rejoicing. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as uh, we come and we we, we really look to your word, we're just astounded that that you are the type of God that, that would, in your love and in your mercy, have conversations with us. Um, that just astounds us and it floors us, Lord, that, that you would have conversations with us to wrestle through um, our questions that are challenging your in- integrity. Man, it, it, t- it tells us that, that you are not threatened by that. And so we shouldn't either, when we hear those questions come up within us or in our midst. You are not too small to answer those questions and your gospel is, is, not, is, is robust enough to handle those questions and, and stay under the weight of them as you support us. And so right now, I just pray for all my friends who are, are here and they're wrestling with questions towards you. I pray that you would keep them uh, to be faithful considerers like Habakkuk and like your son Jesus, to faithfully consider, to ask these questions in curiosity and to wait for answers, God. And I pray that they feel like they can ask anybody here those questions too. And so right now, God, as we just go through our week, God, I pray that you would help us identify these questions in our lives our lives and and faithfully ask them. Amen.